Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing today? I'm fine. Thanks for asking. It's awesome. It's a good day. What a beautiful day. We're having baptism today. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic. It's my favorite thing that we do in church. So, or this one will actually be outside down at the lake. So it's going to be fantastic. Uh, so uh, let's jump in. Um, enough of the small talk. Let's jump into what's going on. How many of you are baseball fans? Wait, that is small talk. No. All right. So let me show you somebody. Let me see if you know who this guy is. Okay. So you aficionados. Who, you know that guy? Anybody? Well, what kind of fans are you? This guy, his name is Mike Hessman. He has hit more home runs than anyone else in baseball history in the minor leagues. Which is a rather unfortunate distinction. He's 37 years old, still playing in the minor leagues. In, in about 17 years of professional baseball history in his life, he has played 100 games in the major leagues, everything else been in the minor leagues. But he has hit over 430 home runs. That's enough home runs, almost enough home runs, to be a lock for the Hall of Fame in the majors. But there is no Hall of Fame for the minors, because who wants to be in it? I'm in the Hall of Fame, single A. That's not that cool, right? So there's not one of those. So it's interesting. People will come up to Mike Hessman and they'll go, wow, you've hit more home runs than anybody in the minor leagues. And he's, his response to that, to that is, yes, but that's not who I am. So we're talking these days about who we are, right? The series we're doing is, I know you are, but who am I? And the last three words of that are the most important who am I? We talked last weekend when we launched this series that there's a lot of identity confusion in our world. In this generation, there's a lot of identity confusion. And in the history of the world, there's been the same thing. It's not like this is some new phenomenon for us these days. Back in the days of Aristotle, people were asking the philosophers, yeah, how, how do we know who we are? How do we know what our identity is? And so Aristotle took a swing at it. He said, we are what we, re- it's a hard to say, we are what we repeatedly do. And when I very first heard that, I thought, oh, that's a great description of like life. And if you want to be on a self-help trajectory and you want to create new habits, like we are what we repeatedly do. If I just keep repeatedly doing good things, I'm going to be a good person. It's going to be fantastic. Except that our identity is not about what we do. And you can tell everybody else what you do. I work at Intel. Uh Uh-huh, but that is not who you are. I sell bagels. Fantastic. I hope they're wonderful bagels, but that's not who you are. I graduated from Stanford. Not me personally, but, you know, somebody could say that. Yeah, but that's nice, but that's what you did, but that's not who you are. I run 40 miles a week. Why? I don't know. It's what you do, but it's not who you are. See, you are not defined by what you do. You are defined by who you are. You're defined by your identity, and your identity primarily comes from who God says you are. We have this identity confusion in our world, but God goes, I want to clear this up for you so that you know exactly who you are. My identity is based on who I am. 
which is interesting. When you make a statement about your identity, and, and I told you last weekend, we're going to give you an identity statement to build on every week through this series. So there's going to be four of them. And last week, we started with this statement. Everybody in the world could make this statement. They don't, not everyone in the world believes in God, so they wouldn't, but we could make this statement about them. Every single person in the world could say, I am a carrier of the unmistakable image of God. Because that statement goes before Genesis chapter 3. That statement goes before the fall of humanity, before Adam and Eve had their problems, before you had your problems. All of us, before anything happened, we could say this, I am a carrier of the unmistakable image of God. And it's fascinating, when you start an identity statement, not with I do, but I am, you are automatically connecting to God. Because when God met Moses at the burning bush in the book of Exodus, some of you remember this story, they're out there in the wilderness, the bush is on fire, but it's not burning up. Moses goes to see what's going on, and God speaks to him from the bush. And in the process of that, God tells Moses God's name. God says, my name is Yahweh. Or we sometimes translate it Jehovah. But it's a word, it's a name that means I am. God says my memorial name is I am that I am. And when you make an identity statement that starts not with I do, but with I am, you are connecting to God. I am a carrier of the unmistakable image of God. And every single person in the world could say that. The problem is, there's a shadow that hangs over us. We looked at this at the very end of last week's talk. If you didn't, weren't here for that, go back and watch the podcast. Uh, that's cool. But we, at the very end of that, we said, well, there's a shadow that's hang, hanging over that image in us. It's the shadow that comes from Genesis chapter 3. And every single one of us lives under the shadow of Genesis chapter 3 every day. There's evidence of the fact that we've fallen in our lives every single day. And if you don't see evidence in your life that you've fallen every single day, the people around you see it. They know you've fallen and can't get up. And of course, you know, most of us are sensitive enough to ourselves to say, oh, that's true of me. I, I live with this cloud that comes over my life, and I'm a carrier of the unmistakable image of God, but I live with this cloud of brokenness, or what the Bible calls sin. And when I think of our identity, I want to know, is that, is that cloud redeemable? Is the brokenness redeemable? Is there anything that God can do in us and for us that would redeem us from that cloud? So that not only could we say, I am a carrier of the unmistakable image of God, but I can live like that actually works, like that actually is true, rather than living under the shadow So, yeah, if you've been with us very long, you know that Lakeside believes in hope. We're talking about the pain is in the family, the hope is in the church. We believe that hope comes from Jesus. So if we're going to talk about the issue of the shadow and the cloud that's over us, we're going to talk about it from a hope perspective. So I want to do this today from Ephesians chapter 1. So if you have your copy of the Bible, pull it out now and let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's some on the rows near you. Uh, or you can use your smartphone. If you're using a, a smartphone, we, you can find the YouVersion app. And under their little, um, their list of icons, there's one that says live. So YouVersion slash live will get you right into some notes that we prepared for this. So you can uh, add some notes of your own into it for this topic if you like. 
So Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul. It was a letter written to Christians in a town called Ephesus 2,000 years ago. And these people were followers of Jesus there. And so Paul writes them this letter. He says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Let's stop there. That's enough. There's enough content in there for a long time, but let's just see if we can dig through that and find the next piece of our identity statement. So last week, I gave you a statement. I'm like, here's our identity statement. Take it home. Say it every morning. You'll forget it by lunchtime, so say it again at lunchtime. You'll forget it by evening, so say it around the table and say it again before you go to bed. And some of you forgot to do that, I bet. Don't, don't raise your hand. So I want to add to that one, this next one. Some of you are in a grow group where you're walking through the Igniter book that we've published for this series, and maybe you're writing your own identity statements that come from Scripture. That's fantastic. But if not, or if in addition, let me build one with you today from Ephesians chapter 1. And it begins with this, I am in Christ. I am in Christ. Now, not everyone can say that. Not like the first identity statement where everyone is a carrier of the image of God. Not like that. In this one, it is only those who have chosen to follow Jesus. We can say, I am in Christ. So listen to how Paul starts this letter again. He says, to God's holy people in Ephesus. The word holy people, is the, it's the Greek word that we usually translate saint. I know the Pope is in town. Well, not in town, but it, like in country. Yeah, he's been following him and what's going on with that. He, he, he named a new saint this week. Father Junipero Serra from California and the missions and all that stuff. He called, he's like, he is now a saint. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Let me, let me give you a deal. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a saint. Yeah. It's awesome. Saint Bradley. Why was that funny? Raise your right hand. Say, I'm a saint. I'm a saint. Yeah, woohoo. You don't, you don't look any different. Yeah, it's a name that he gives you. It's an identity that he puts on you. It says, I'm writing to the holy people. I'm writing to the saints. That's you. That's those who are followers of Jesus. And then he says this. Uh, grace and peace to you from God. Oh, that's not the right one. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, here we go. It's the same sentence. I got excited and went past it. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. There's something that Paul highlights over and over and over in the first three chapters of Ephesians. He highlights that we who are followers of Jesus are in Christ The challenge is that's a little weird. It's like, well, what does it mean to be in somebody? 
It's a little creepy to be in somebody. What does that look like? Well, we're doing a baptism this afternoon over at Lake Natoma. It's going to be a fantastic time. We've got like 35 people that are being baptized today. It's going to be a wonderful celebration of people who are in Christ. And actually, we're going to go down into the water, what's left of it. We're going to, we're going to take people who, who are following Jesus, and we're going to lay them right down into the water, and they're going to be in the water. And that's an identification statement that says, as Jesus died and was buried, so I'm being buried with Christ, buried to my sin, buried to that cloud that goes over me, buried to all of that. I am in the water, and I am in Christ. And Jesus died, they buried him, they left him in the grave for three days, so we're going to leave these people in the water for like three days. <laughs> and then on Tuesday, we're coming back and we're going to raise them to life. <laughs> okay, well, not exactly, that's not exactly, three seconds, maybe three seconds, but they're going to come back up out of the water, they're going to identify with Christ in his resurrection, they are in Christ. And that's a biblical metaphor we've been following as Christ followers for 2,000 years. It's beautiful. I hope you come and join us to see it, to witness it, to experience it. It's amazing. But honestly, the, the metaphor of baptism, the symbol of baptism, it's old. And sometimes it doesn't land on us as clearly as it landed on people in the very first century and how they saw things. And so let me see if I can put this in another way of what it means to be in Christ. Today, around the country, there are thousands of people who are gathering in, in shrines and worship auditoriums, and they're wearing the colors of their team in NFL stadiums across the nation. I mean, right? It's a worship experience for some people. You'll see it at, you know, something happens in the game, and all of a sudden, everybody's got their hands up like they're praising Jesus. But, they, but their team just did something good. They're all excited about that. Well, what happens was when they go to these shrines, they wear the team's colors. They wear the, they wear the outfit. They wear the, the tunic or whatever of, their, of the team they're worshiping with or something. Okay, you, okay am, I, am I taking the metaphor a little too far for you? Some of you have a favorite team. And your favorite team wears their jersey when they go to the game like that. Now, something fascinating happens when you're in Jersey. I don't mean in New Jersey. I mean in the Jersey. Something fascinating happens. You change. Now, I'm betting you. I don't know. I don't know the girl on the right. I don't know who she is or anything like that. But I'm betting that she doesn't go around the office Monday through Friday kissing her biceps. But she puts on a 49ers jersey with Kaepernick across the back. And she can't help herself. I got my jersey on. It's because when you're in Jersey, it changes your behavior. Now, that's true of all the fans of all. Some of you, don't, some of you are not 49ers fans. Some of you are the other guys. You, you like the other guys. We have a picture of those guys? That's just weird. The guy on the left is an accountant for Erston Young. I don't know if that's really where, you know, but you, you don't know what he does Monday through Friday, but he puts on the colors and he changes. He is in jersey. He is in uniform and he changes. That's what it's like to be in Christ. I am in Christ and he changes me. See, sometimes people think, I've got to be good so I can be with Christ. The Bible puts it all the way on its head. It says, you are in Christ, therefore you can be good. You are in Christ, therefore you can live for him. You are in Christ, so your behavior can change. 
The problem with Aristotle's thought about being, you know, about our identity, we are what we repeatedly do, is that what we repeatedly do is brokenness. And when you are in Christ, God begins to change that for you. So here's the beginning of our statement. I am in Christ. All right, so if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, let's, let's just say that together, all right, with, with gusto. Ready? I am in Christ. Nice. Now, that's, that's easy. I could just give you that. And you can go home and you can go, I could say this every day, four times a day, I am in Christ. But Paul's not done. So let's don't finish yet. So the next thing he says that I want you to see is in verse 4. He says this, For God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. God chose us. Here's the second statement. I'm in Christ chosen. Now that's not like a real sentence yet because we're going to add some other stuff to it, but, th- but park on that for a minute. I am in Christ chosen. It is a beautiful thing to be chosen. He says before the creation of the world, he chose you. That means before you were ever a carrier of the unmistakable image of God, he chose you. It means before you ever fell with Adam and Eve and yourself, before any of that cloud came into your life, he chose you. Before you could ever do anything good so that God would say, wow, that guy's really good, I'm going to choose him. Before you ever did anything good, God chose you. Before you ever did anything where you messed up, where you go, God would never choose me because I'm so messed up. Before that ever happened, he chose you. You ever been chosen? You know what it's like? You know what it feels like to be chosen? Some of you are chosen for your job, right? You send in a resume to some company or somebody, and, and, and they got 100 resumes, and they sorted through them. They picked the top 10. They called the top five, and you were in the top five, and they interviewed you. They called you in for an interview, and somehow after that interview, they called you back up. They said, we chose you. It's such a great thing. I was never chosen to be the pastor of Lakeside Church because we started it. Like, okay, if you're not going to choose us, we're going to come start it anyway. See how that goes. So this is our 28th anniversary today. Yeah. It's good stuff, and we all get to, we all get to share that together. That's pretty cool stuff. But in the process of that, there was no committee that was here to go, I'm gonna, we're going to interview the new pastor for Lakeside. I have been chosen before, though. I was chosen in a church in Santa Cruz before I got here years and years ago. Sent my resume in. They did the interview thing. They called me. They go, we want you to come and join our team. I'm like, that's amazing. Children know what it's like to be chosen or not. Remember on the playground? Remember what it's like to be on the playground? When I was a little child, I used to be pretty good at baseball. And so when it was spring or summer and it's baseball season and we'd be having a sandlot game going and then, you know, there'd be a couple captains who were like the really good guys and then the, the, the rest of us and then they'd start picking and in baseball season, I was always pretty, like pretty early, not necessarily always first, but, but early enough to go, I was chosen. <laughs> and then basketball season would roll around. I 
I've always been sort of a Starbucks tall. That's the shortest cup in the stack. Those guys don't get chosen for basketball early. I'm like always the last guy chosen for basketball. If a dog walked through the park, they'd pick the dog. It is a sweet thing to be chosen. It is a not sweet thing not to be chosen. And Paul writes to us, he said, in Christ, God chose us before the creation of the world. He chose you. Thirty-six years ago, a young woman stood at an altar, looked me right in the eyes, and she said, I choose you. I said, you are what you repeatedly do. Keep saying that every day. Because I want her to keep choosing me. It's, you know, it's, it's fine to say, I did it once. It lasts till we die. Okay, that's what we said at the altar. But would you keep choosing me? Because it's beautiful to be chosen. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. When you're a follower of Jesus, your identity statement goes like this. I am in Christ chosen. Let's say that one together. Let's just do a little bit more interactive. Can we do that? All right. I am in Christ chosen. Ready? I am in Christ chosen. Now he's not done yet. So let's go on to the next one. In verse 5, he says this. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. In love, he predestined us. Now, I'm not going to talk about predestination because nobody in the world understands it, and they never have. So, well, never mind. Somebody probably understands it, like God understands it. But let's go to the next phrase. He predestined us before anything ever happened, before the creation of the world, he predestined us to be Uh, for adoption to sonship or that's the old roman way to say it in in roman in the roman world only sons could be adopted but he's talking to all of us we could be adopted as sons and daughters of god i know so many people in our church family who have stories of adoption And I'm sure there's dozens and dozens of stories that I don't even know about adoption. I I know so many of you either have been adopted or have adopted someone into your family. I have such honor for those of you who have said to a child, we want to take you into our family. We want to give you our name. We want to give you our family. We want you to be ours. That is chosen on steroids. And it's amazing. And those of you who have given that gift to a child, that, you're amazing. And you, in that process, have acted like God. You have behaved like God behaves because he adopted us. In love, he adopted us. And that also changes us. Steve Jobs was adopted. You know Steve? You're carrying his phone in your pocket or... What, you know, you've got all this influence from Steve Jobs. He was adopted. His story is written by Walter Isaacson. He said this, Steve Jobs knew from an early age that he was adopted. My parents were very open with me about that, Jobs recalled. He had a vivid memory of sitting on the lawn of his house when he was six or seven years old, telling the girl who lived across the street. So does that mean your real parents didn't want you? The girl asked. 
lightning bolts went off in my head, Job said. I remember running into the house crying, and my parents said, no, no, you have to understand. And they were very serious and looked me straight in the eye. They said, we specifically picked you out. Both of my parents said that and repeated it slowly for me. And they put an emphasis on every word in that sentence. We specifically picked you out. That's what it's like to be adopted. And that's what God did with you. He says, I specifically picked you out. Not because you were so hot, not because you were so cool, not in spite of the fact that you were broken. I just specifically picked you out. It's who you are. It's not based on what you did. It's who you are. We have many children here at Lakeside who have been adopted. Uh, One of them is a 17-year-old man named Nathan Peters. He's not old enough to get a tattoo, so he went to his parents a while ago, and he said, hey, mom and dad, I want to get a tattoo. And as they engaged in the conversation, they talked with him about what he wanted. He, they said yes to him. He got a tattoo. And now on his arm, he wears the adoption triangle of love, it's called. It's a symbol of his baptism. And in the middle of that heart and triangle, that interwoven heart and triangle, there are two dates. One is the date on which he came to live at his adoptive family's house. And the other date is the date on which his adoption was finalized. And he wears it on his shoulder and he says, that's who I am. That's who I am. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ... This is who you are. I am in Christ, chosen and adopted. God specifically picked you out. You see how that changes your life? Now, that's our identity statement so far. We're not done yet because Paul has more he wants to say. One more. But let's just say that one together. Let's just get that firmly etched in our heart today, together, right? I am in Christ, chosen, and adopted. All right, now this time with gusto, okay? I am chosen. Oh, yeah, I'm in Christ. Oh. Now you're going to remember it. So here we go. I am in Christ, chosen and adopted. Fantastic, but there's more. One more. Listen. Well, let me give you some background. See, some of you might be sitting in the room going, well, that's all fun and good for you guys who are in Christ, but I'm not in Christ. I'm not a follower of Christ. I don't feel like God chose me. I'm I'm sort of on the outside. Or maybe some of you are going, hey, I've been thinking about Jesus a lot. Am I in Christ? I don't know if I'm in Christ or out of Christ. I don't know how to get to Christ. I I don't understand this whole thing. And all I feel is the brokenness that I carry throughout my life. So what about me? When chapter 2, Paul gets to you. And we've all walked down this road if we're in Christ. And some of us haven't yet walked down this road. So listen to chapter 2, verse 8. 
Paul writes, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So here's two words you have to know. If you want to engage with Christ, if you want to know if he has chosen you, walk down this road. There are two words, grace and faith. Grace means something that you didn't earn. Grace is when someone gives something to you freely. Grace. He goes, salvation or this connection with God is by grace alone, only by a gift. And it comes through faith, which is also a gift that God gives to you. Nobody works up faith. God gives it to you. And so if you've been thinking about, oh, how do I get to Jesus? How do I walk with God? How do I do this thing with God? How do I get what these people in the room have? Well, it is by grace through faith. And at some point, you cross the line of faith and you say, Jesus, by faith, I'm in. Now, I'm going to describe that for you more in a couple of minutes, but Let me just go to the next word for you, the next statement for you, because this is going to wrap up our identity statement today. Verse 10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are his handiwork. Literally, the word that Paul used there is the Greek word poema. It's the word from which we get our word poem. He says, you're God's poem. You're God's poetry. Now, half the room just went, I don't want to be God's poetry. Like, right? The men are like, I don't want to be a poem. Okay, ladies, you are God's poetry. And you're fantastic. And men, you're God's handiwork. Notice he, he, they translated it for you guys because you sort of get, you know, we're God's handiwork. <laughs> you know, it just makes us feel better, right? So we are God's handiwork or another translation is we are God's workmanship another translation is we are God's craftsmanship we are God's poem or another translation is we are God's masterpiece you go yeah I know but I don't really feel like a masterpiece because I got this cloud that comes with me that's what you do who you are is your God's masterpiece It helps us to learn to live our life from God's perspective, to to establish our identity from God's perspective, not based on what you repeatedly do, but based on what God repeatedly says about you and what he accomplished for you. Some of you use a phrase that I first heard years ago from a friend of mine, and some of you used the same phrase. He, my, my friend would sometimes um, see somebody do something that was like, that, you know, not all, not all that bright, you know, and, and he'd call him a piece of work. You know that one? Oh, man, you are a piece of work. That guy, wouldn't say it to you necessarily, that guy's a piece of work, which means the work is not over yet. Or we're all, we're all hoping it's not over yet because it didn't get completed. You're a piece of work. And he always said it with a little, you know, a little sly grin on his face. But you knew if, you were a, if he was calling you a piece of work. But I liked, I liked the phrase. And I used it one day on my wife. <laughs> I 
I tried it with a sly grin and everything. I'm, I'm like, I'm trying to do it, you know, right. Honey, you're a piece of work. Yeah. I, I'm, uh, I'm not the tallest, t- tallest cup in the stack, and I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. But I'm a fairly fast learner when it comes to my wife. I learned I had to change that phrase up. So I started calling her a work of art. Which is, no, no, wait, 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 wait for it, wait for it. I'm going to be a hero at the end of the story, but I'm not there yet. (laughs) Might not be then. You can say work of art with the same tonal inflections as piece of work. Like, honey, you are a work of art. <laughs> See, it, it, it's, hmm. I had to change the phrase and I had to change the inflection. And I've learned, I've learned to call this beautiful bride of mine, I've, I've learned to call her a work of art. You know what's happening in her life? She's every day becoming more and more a work of art. She's beautiful. God says to you, you are my work of art. And I know the paint hasn't dried. I know the clay still has some, you know, ridges that need to be set or removed or at sharp edges. You know, I know that, but you are my work of art. I am in Christ, a chosen adopted work of art. If you knew that that's how God sees you and you could convince yourself by faith that that's how God sees you, that identity would change your life. I am in Christ, a chosen, adopted work of art. And if you are in Christ, it's all true of you too. So, let's say it together, all right? Ready? Okay, together. I am in Christ, a chosen, adopted work of art. Woo, yeah, yeah, a little punctuation. Okay, one more time with punctuation, all right? I am in Christ, a chosen, adopted work of art. Woo! Now live like it's true, because it is. Jesus, thank you for what you're doing in us and among us, what what you have done for us. None of this stuff that we're talking about is stuff that we have worked up to. It's what you have done for us. You created us as your work of art so that we would engage well in this world. Lord, I just want to pray for my friends and for me that we would grasp onto this statement of identity which you have said in your scriptures is true of us. Lord, we love you. We seek you out to live this life as a work of art every day. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.